Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks, Assistant Director at University of California Neuroscience Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And fourth-year medical student and our production assistant, Yasmin Dakama. Hi, Yas. Hi. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about treatment for pro- prolonged grief disorder that was recently added to the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And to do that, we are so happy and honored to have us uh, to have join us again, Dr. Catherine Shear. Dr. Shear is the Marion Kenworthy Professor of Psychiatry and the founding director of the Center for Prolonged Grief at Columbia University School of Social Work. Dr. Shear is a clinical researcher whose work over the past 25 years has focused on understanding and treating people who experience persistent, intense grief, which is now an official diagnosis, like I said. She developed and confirmed via three large NIMH-funded studies the efficacy of prolonged grief disorder therapy, a short-term strength-based intervention that helps foster adaptation to loss. Dr. Shear, Kathy, thank you for joining us again on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me, Erin, and everyone else. <laughs> yeah, and I want to kind of get the ball rolling um, with uh, why is this needed First of all, I guess what what was the um, the reasons why it was added, and then why is this treatment needed? Well, it's really been known for a very long time that that some people have a lot of trouble, kind of um, adapting really to the loss of a loved one, and this is true around the world. It's been it's been observed around the world, it's been studied around the world, and really for many many decades. But the first time it was proposed was around, it was for DSM-4 in the 19, in the 1980s and the reason was that it it was it became more and more obvious that this was a unique condition that really focused the problem focused on thoughts and memories and feelings about the person who died and that's really what that's just it just it naturally fills up our mind right after we lose someone close, but it was it was persisting in somewhere around, I guess the, the current episode, the current prevalence rates are somewhere between three and maybe 10% of, of um, people who experience the loss of someone by a natural death. It's about twice or three times that if the death occurs um, after sudden unexpected death, a violent death, a suicide, a homicide, an accident, that sort of thing. So and it, and this causes tremendous distress and impairment really what the the criteria really for a diagnosis and there's a lot of evidence of this in a lot of different ways so we really needed to have something to help people and and actually i got involved in doing this treatment because people really were thinking that this was a form of depression that's what that's what we as psychiatry has thought for a very long time but I was working with colleagues who were doing interpersonal psychotherapy for depression, which is a really wonderful treatment for depression. And it even has a grief focus. Right. And it wasn't 
this, the symptoms that we see with prolonged grief disorder, we're not budging with that or, or you know, maybe getting a little bit better, but really wasn't helping. And same with antidepressants, right? Antidepressants weren't working for this group of people either. Exactly. That's exactly right. Before we get dive into it, with um, can I ask you, like, what is your philosophy about using antidepressants for prolonged grief disorder? Well, we we did one of our studies was studying that it doesn't help. It does not help. Um, there's no evidence at all that it helps um, symptoms of prolonged grief disorder. However, like everything else we treat, there's often comorbidities. And one of the very common comorbidities is depression. So we often see depression concurrent with grief symptoms. We, you know, that's one of the things that happened is you could, you can definitely separate clinically, you can separate them and you can separate the depression and prolonged grief disorder with um, questionnaires and rating scales. So antidepressants do help depression in this context. It, 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 there's nothing about having depression after bereavement that makes it a different kind of depression. Grief is different from depression, but depression is not different from depression. And so in that same study, we found that the comorbid symptoms of depression did significantly improve um, more so you know, with the antidepressant medication. So people who have both, it does help to also treat with antidepressants. So let me ask, when you're coming up with a new tr type of treatment, how do you start? What Do you base it off of a older therapy modality or how do you Yes, great start? question. Is yes. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, the first thing we noticed was as we, you know, we started, I started working with colleagues who were, who'd been treating depression. And I came from the anxiety disorders treatment world. And the first thing, the reason why I got involved really was because my colleagues noticed that it was really, it was probably better to call this a stress response syndrome than it was to call it an affective disorder. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and actually Marty Horowitz out in California was the, he's the one that proposed, um, it was complicated, or I don't know what he proposed. He proposed what, I, what he called it back then, but but um, he proposed this in the DSM-4 and he called it, he was studying stress response syndromes. That's what he studied all of his career. And this was one of them. So, so what, how we started the treatment was I actually called up my friend Edna Foa, who developed prolonged grief disorder, I'm, I'm sorry, prolonged exposure for uh, PTSD. Mm. And she came and did a workshop for us and we started working with people really just pretty much using prolonged exposure. That's where we really started. But at the same time, I started reading the grief literature. I started reading the attachment literature. I started reading a lot of, I started doing a lot of reading. And as we saw people, we were, we were, you know, we saw some of the, um, the ways that prolonged exposure just itself maybe needed a little bit more. So one of the first things that happened was there was a publication in 1999 of something uh, by colleagues in the Netherlands, Maggie Stroby and Hank Schute, um, called the dual process model of coping with bereavement. And they made the point that um, when you lose someone, you, we, so I have been taught you grieve a loss and then you move forward. You know, that's what, that's what I was always taught. That's what I thought 
you're supposed to do. You had to grieve and grieve and grieve, and then eventually you could move forward. They said, no, 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 this is this is much more complicated than that. And really, you have to grieve and move forward at the same time. And it turns out, <clears throat> it turns out that John Bowlby, writing in his lost book in 1980, had said something very, very similar. So then we started thinking, okay, well, what does that mean? You know, like, how do you move yeah. forward? <laughs> so, so, um, but, you know, we, so we, I, I forget it. Well, actually, I forget exactly. I think around the same time, I someone said, well, you know, these people are kind of stuck because we started observing that, that people with prolonged grief disorder were stuck be, partly because they didn't want to move forward. In other words, there was a lot of ambivalence. And also around this time, Tom Insel, who I think you all know, um, wrote a paper called Love is an Addiction. And so, and, and you know, we started thinking about the relationship between, obviously, we're losing someone close, that's a love relationship. And so, the, and so we started thinking about the relationship between addiction and love. And, and so then we got interested in motivational interviewing. So motivational interviewing has a component that's called personal goals work. And we decided that's that's something that has to do with um, if you know that if you I don't know if you guys know motivational interviewing and personal goals work, but they, it focuses on what do you want to accomplish in your treatment. But we said, well, this isn't about treatment really. This is about life. Like you know, so so we changed this to what do you want to accomplish in your life? And then I started. I I, I think I serendipitously ran into a body of literature called self determination theory which I, I don't think many psychiatrists know about. Some psychologists do. It, it, it's a theory that was developed in it, it, out of a line of research that was done in the, in the late 1900s. Um, the, the main paper about it was published in 2000. And its premise is that in order to thrive in life, um, we need to be able to do things that Make us give us a feeling of autonomy, competence, and relatedness. But what they mean by autonomy is um, intrinsically motivated activities, and, and intrinsically motivated means things that that um, provide either hedonic or eudaimonic pleasure, which which means either either you know something that we're deeply interested in or something that connects with our values and provides us with actual pleasure to do it or, um, or, you know, deep satisfaction, meaning that's very meaningful to us. So we developed a procedure that we call aspirational goals work. And that became part of the treatment in early, early in the, in the beginning of the sessions, you know, which I'll describe in a minute, I think, but and so we start. We built in that, and then what else did we do? And then we also realized that you we don't grieve well alone. I think that's everyone knows that. And we were, and the and people were telling us that no one around them was sympathetic to them because we're we're seeing people now, two, three, four years after the death, who don't want to talk about anything except the person who died, who can't really get engaged in their life, and their friends and family have gotten very frustrated with them. And so we decided we had to do something about that. So we built in um, a, a component of the treatment we now call strengthening relationships, which entailed bringing 
someone into one of the sessions and then looking for opportunities to encourage people to to reconnect in various ways as we move through the treatment. And then the last thing we did actually came because someone asked me to to review a paper on, um, uh, um, I'm sorry, nightmare revision for, for um, I don't know if you know about this, this was developed by an internist actually named Barry Krakow. No, I don't know. Uh, night, um, yeah, nightmare revision for treatment of nightmares. And it started out just plain old nightmares. But anyway, what, what they what they did is they had people revise the nightmare and and sort of, and I don't know why, but that sort of made me think, well, what if we got people to have a conversation with the person who died, you know, sort of, which is which is actually something done fairly regularly, like in Gestalt therapy. I didn't know that at the time, but but um, but anyway, so we, so that was the last thing we built in because we said, okay, after we do the the part of the part of this that is like prolonged exposure was to tell the story of the death event, basically to tell the story of the death of the person and to address the avoidance. So we call those imaginal and situational revisiting in this treatment, but it's basically, those are basically exposure techniques that come directly from prolonged exposure for PTSD. It's a very long winded answer to your question. That was so interesting though. So yeah, yeah. you were really inspired by multiple modalities of therapy and sounds like this process took a while. So Okay, so you've touched on some principles of it. So what does this look like in practice? Right. So where we landed, and it, it actually didn't take as long, it probably took me longer to describe it, but um, it, it didn't take that long because the really the heart, this heart of prolonged exposure. And also the other thing, you know, I was dynamically trained. I trained at Payne Whitney in New York, and, you know, I had a very strong psychodynamic psychotherapy background. And that I think is always useful to it. whatever you do in, mm. in psychotherapy. It's it's a really wonderful background because it tells you mostly, in my opinion, what it does so well is it tells you how to listen to people. So we started out, you know, listen. So we start out this treatment, and and this is when I teach, you know, students about this. I I always say that the most important thing that anybody can do for any grieving person is to listen to them actually, that's just number one. And to validate what they're feeling, to, to empathize, support them and empathize and validate. And then, you know, after you do all that, if you have the, if you know what to do, then you guide them and we do guide them. And that's what I'm going to tell you about. But I, I really can't emphasize enough the importance of listening and validating because people are feeling so alone and so um, and so worried about themselves and feeling like there's just no there's that no one they can't connect with anyone. So that really starts the the process. And so we this treatment is 16 sessions, and it includes um, what we now call a series of healing milestones. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking with Dr. Catherine Shear about prolonged grief disorder treatment. Dr. Shear, Kathy, go ahead, continue. So, so we um, we begin the treatment like any other treatment with a, a basic getting a basic understanding of the person, and we want to know a little bit about their early history because because their um, 
their relationships matter, of course. And and then we we look for it really a standard um, psychiatric evaluation. And we also include some discussion of their of not only their vulnerabilities, which we always include, but also of their strengths. We we make a, a special point of asking about their strengths. So that's a little bit different. And the other thing that's a little bit different, of course, is that we focus on the loss. So we also then ask about their relationship with the person who died and then how the person died and then what they've been experiencing since, the, essentially the grief that they've been experiencing since the person died. We end that first session by introducing the grief monitoring diary because the first of our hmm healing milestones is to help people understand and accept grief and manage the grief related emotions. And that's kind of, in a way, that's the heart of the treatment, but we do have five other healing milestones, which we're going to walk through that are going to also help, um, help with this process. And the model that we're using is that we all have the capacity to adapt to even the hardest loss and the data strongly supports that because as i said that you know even if it's 20 percent of people who have the the most difficult kind of loss that means still 80 percent of us find a way forward after mm. a really difficult loss and and the so we're making the assumption that we all have the capacity to do that and the reason why people aren't moving ahead who have prolonged grief is because something is blocking that. And we call the, what blocks it, we call derailers. And those derailers are actually natural, what will be called defensive um, responses to the overwhelming stress trauma of, of um, a loss like this, that we, you know, it's just, it's, it really brings just a whole huge emotional and, and, and physical and, um, social changes are, are massive and we can't wrap our mind around it. So we have to, we have to, in the beginning, and this is where he talks about this kind of oscillation between loss and, or really it's between confronting the pain and setting it aside. That's how, that's how most of us spend our days after maybe the first week or two after someone dies, day or two sometimes, but eventually we start kind of dealing with it and setting it aside. And so we want people to start to understand how to do that and understand that they do it naturally also. And um, and so we get them to monitor grief in a very specific way, which is to, at, at the end of the day, the specific way is a very brief way, first of all, because no one with this condition has much bandwidth to do a lot of things. They, sure. they have to keep things simple. So we ask them to take five minutes at the end of each day and think back over the day and to a time when their grief was at its highest level and just put a number on that from a zero to 10, 10 being the highest they've ever experienced and zero one being the lowest. And, and, um, and then say just say something very simple about what was happening at the time. So a lot of people, for example, it's when they wake up in the morning, they, you know, they wake up and they feel okay for a minute and then they remember the person's gone and they have a big spike in their grief. And, and so th they would just write whatever it is, eight, nine, 10, 
is the level. And then they would say, woke up in the morning. That's all they have to do. And then they do the exact same thing for the lowest level of the day. And then we ask them to take a big picture view and, and decide if this was a low, medium, or high level brief day. So that's step one. And then should I keep going? <laughs> Are you okay? I, I'm very interested because I'm seeing it. This is building to, to some, some work some important work. You're getting data. It sounds like you're getting data that's building up to some important. Yeah. Um, I'm interested. Yeah, I am. It's very interested. Okay. So, so, so now we're going to build that grief monitoring is going to go through the entire treatment and the beginning of the next um, session, we're going to review that with the person just choosing one of the high levels and one of the low levels and just, and talking about it because often we'll see evidence of one of these um, defensive responses, which, which I, I guess I should tell you what they are there. They include things like disbelief and protest and what's called counterfactual thinking or imagining alternative scenarios. We all do these things. We all do it, but it doesn't get a foothold with everyone. And then also, um, you know, the avoidance, trying to, trying to avoid things that activate our grief. And that can be experiential avoidance, or it can be behavioral avoidance, but we're looking for that. We're looking for, trouble um, imagining either either difficulty or 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 um, either not being able to imagine a future or not wanting to imagine a future it could be both mm -hmm. or either and um, and blaming self-blame and anger are very common also we almost always feel some self-blame and anger after someone close dies we almost always have survivor guilt that's another one um, also people worry about their grief, like, are they grieving right? Or, you know, are they doing it right? Or, mm. you know, they, is there a right way to grieve? And then this inability to connect with others. So we're looking for those kinds of things to, to pause and address when we see them. So are these the derailers or yes, those are the derailers. these are the derailers? Okay. Those are the derailers. Would you say that this is, well, what is your idea about why this, this approach is so much more effective than your typical approach with depression may be adapted to loss and things like, and PTSD treatment adapted to loss. Is, is this it? Is, is this one of the, the most important curative factors, this kind of targeting and uh, identification of derailers? I think so. And I also think the, the specific, the healing milestones, again, that what they have to do with is the, our concept of what it, it means to adapt to a loss or what it means to come to terms with a loss. And what it, and in particular, that we have to both accept the reality, which isn't that easy to do, which means the finality of what's happened, all the consequences, which are often myriad. You know, there, there's a lot that happens um, because that person is gone. And we have a new relationship with the person. We don't lose the relationship that we have with someone who is very important to us. Um, and um, and then um, and then also accepting grief into our life because grief is grief is going to be there. It's just it it kind of emerges naturally and finds a place in our life, but it's going to be there. And so we have to not fight it, not try to get rid of it, etc. So we're going to walk through these healing milestones the one in what we introduce in in um session two is is really psychoeducation about all of this for the patient and then um the aspirational goals work that i was talking about before session three we bring someone in to the treatment session four we start the imaginal what we call imaginal revisiting which is 
a way of narrating the story of the death. Mm-hmm. It's very particular that we do is similar to PTSD to um, prolonged exposure for PTSD, but not exactly the same. And it has different, actually different goals from that. And then we, from there, we introduce something we call situational revisiting, which is essentially like in vivo exposure. And then we have some memories questionnaires and the last one of these milestones is connecting with memories. And so that's when we have, we invite the person to have an imaginal conversation with the person who died. So that's the basic framework for the, the therapy. And I think to answer your question, it's really, it's very targeted at what I think are the main issues for someone who's trying to come to terms with a loss and having trouble with it. I was just going to reflect and ask the therapy itself seems extensive. And I was curious for an individual experiencing prolonged exposure, um, or excuse me, prolonged grief disorder, Are is it often that they come to seek this therapy? Or do you find that someone else tells them that they should yeah. seek the therapy? Great, great question. It's both, really. I mean, when we did our studies you know, I, I don't know how much you know about randomized controlled trials, but it's always difficult to recruit. So, and when we did our studies, we would have these two minute advertisements on the radio and people would stop their cars and they would say, oh my gosh, it sounds like someone understands me. So that, that was one group of people. And so we actually always recruited, We in one of our studies, we over-recruited. All my mm-hmm. colleagues were intensely envious <laughs> because wow. people, but you're right, some of them, didn't come unless, you know, they came only because someone was really said, either you do this or I'm leaving, or, you know, you have to do it. You're not, they just convinced them they had to. So in total, how many sessions are we looking at? 16 sessions. 16. Can you tell us about outcomes? I know you've done, your group has done a bunch of studies. What are, what are some of the select results? So our main outcome has always been a clinical global improvement scale, but um, which is, as you may know, you know, it, it's um, there's an um, much improved, very much improved, same mildly improved, whatever like that. And we had independent evaluators, people who didn't know what treatment the person got. And when we did that. In each of our studies, it was remarkably similar. So we did two studies with IPT and one with medication. And all three of them showed really about a 70 to 80% response rate for this treatment and compared to a 30% response rate for IPT or antidepressant medication. That's a big difference. The big difference. It's a very big difference. For a psychotherapy study, it's one of the biggest, actually. Wow. So, and that was that was mirrored. There's there's a bunch of like um, self-report rating scales. We call that sensitivity analyses. You know, when we we sort of check to make sure that everything looks the same, and basically they all followed suit. So now that you have the uh, the benefit of developing this incredible therapy therapeutic approach, and then you've studied it, it's evidence based. When you reflect back, what do you feel like most clinicians uh, did not really? Um, implement or utilize in their therapy pre uh, the time before we developed this, this approach and maybe things that might not have been very helpful for the client. Right. And I think that really the answer to that is that most people, most people, I think, follow that premise that you have to grieve the loss and then move forward. And 
I mean, I've heard a lot of stories of of clinicians, really good clinicians even, eventually saying what what everyone else in the person's life is saying, you know, honey, you just have to move on for this from this, you know, and let's and then trying to and then looking for if they're, you know, if they're dynamically oriented, they may look for the underlying problems, or if they're um, you know, if they're CBT therapists or other kinds of therapists, they may be looking for what's causing this. You know, they they have some kind of a model of what's causing this that I think is not quite right. I mean, it's partly right, but it isn't the time to address it. So it what the underlying causes. I mean, we the causes that I talked about, the derailers and the adaptation is very kind of superficial. It's right in the moment stuff. Something probably underlying is making the person more likely, might be making the person more likely to experience those, but this is not the time to address that because, you know, it's grief is too much filling the person's mind. So it and sounds like you accepted do- that, you know, as a, as a, I don't think people, clinicians generally think about it that way. I'm just going to say, it sounds like you do a lot, those 16 sessions and acceptance and many of those exercises before then looking at some of the underlying components we don't really get to the underlying components in this treatment okay and that's all the time we have for this edition of let's get psyched today we talked about prolonged grief disorder treatment with dr katherine Shear. kathy thank you for joining us again on let's get psyched thank you for having me Pleasure. and also thank you to our co-hosts doctors toshi dr toshi yamaguchi I almost, I almost called you a doctor, Yasmin. Not yet. No, not yet. <laughs> Fourth year medical student, Yasmin Dakama, uh, and our production assistant. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write us at getpsychedonkucrgmail.com. And you can also listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. Our production assistant is Yasmin Dakama. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Great. Kathy is, um, so, okay. And this, we can still keep this on recording for our podcast extended version, because I actually have another question I want to ask you too. Oh, good, good. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll answer it only if you teach me how to talk in that fast way, because that's what I need to do. Oh, no, that was great. I was riveted with the discussion. Um, So one one thing that a lot of folks, this is my opinion of working with folks, is that most people don't know how to respond or interact up to acquaintances and friends who have had these very terrible losses. And they I don't think they end up being that helpful. What can you say? to just friends and family of people who have suffered a loss, given that you know what works, what's helpful in therapy. Right. People ask me that all the time. And honestly, I think that when when someone's had just had a loss, that's what, you know, you're going to visit them because they've just had a loss. That's the, the or do you mean like two years later? Or I mean, when, when are you talking oh, about Oh, yeah, maybe both, maybe both right after. And then after you've noticed, oh, this person is really struggling here. What, what do yeah, I say? Both. What do I do? So right after, I, what I would say is the main thing that you can do is be as present as possible, as empathic as possible, and not try to help them. Because, you know, we, we have such a strong desire to make people feel better. And it's not possible. You know, it is not possible for anybody to make someone feel better when someone they love dies. And what, what happens when we do it is they feel worse. 
because then they feel like they're making, they're bringing you down or they're not being able to respond to you. And it, so really it's just the best you can do. It's hard for all of us. It's, it, it's hard for me too. It's not so hard later because, because I don't know, it's a different frame, I think. But so later, later, I guess it depends on how it comes up, but if it comes up, you know, like, I guess, empathizing, validating in some way, but also saying, you know, gee, are, are you feeling like maybe you need a little help at this point, you know, and then helping them find that help in one way or another. And, you know, I want to say, I want to say one thing about this treatment. I, I figure that it wasn't that hard to develop it once we focused on grief. And it's only one way to work with people who are struggling in this way. And so I think any good therapist who gets the right, you know, who can can really understand what the problem is, can probably figure out how to work with it in a good way. I okay. My question was for anyone listening who is interested in getting more information on how to practice prolonged grief therapy. What what sort of online resources do you recommend? Do you have? Do you have a training program? Where can they find out more information? We have an extensive training program. We have a website, www.prolonggrief.columbia.edu. And that on that website, we have all, all of our train access to all of our training um, resources, which include regular workshops, regular online workshops. The, they, they tend to be one or two. Right now, they're one or two days long. So it's kind of a commitment. We also have a new... Um, tutorial, the on, fully online asynchronous tutorial. And one of the people that I worked with back quite a while ago, but that I did this treatment with allowed me to videotape it and to put it in, and we made a video. Wow. That, so we call it a self-training video. And that's also available on our website. So, and we have manu a treatment manual. There's have, a treatment manual. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Anyone else have anything else before we close? Yeah. I just have, I was like very curious about the component of the looking at relationships for the individual experiencing prolonged grief disorder. I was curious about when a family member is the one that asks their, the individual to get therapy, like the strain that might happen in that relationship. And if that's kind of addressed in part of that therapy. So we, we, we would encourage the person to bring that person in maybe, I mean, we, we just invite them to bring anyone they want, but often they oh. might bring that person in. But what we do there is we, we talk briefly about the history of their relationship, trying, trying to help them highlight um, what, what they care about in each other, sort of the positives in the relationship. And then, and then we move into the psychoeducation about what we, how we understand what's happening with this person, which is, always very, very different from the person who's been frustrated with them. And I can't think of a single time, well, I, the only time anyone that I know of disputed that was when they were a therapist, actually. <laughs> they happened to be a therapist and they they argued with me about it a little bit. But, but mostly, mostly what we hear is thank you so much because they, they're seeking a way to not feel so angry with the person that they, they have, they're just like, have lost it. So we do that. And then, and then we try to help them think about ways that they might be able to help moving forward, something like that. And then we bring that back into the session in various ways uh, to the treatment 
throughout the treatment. You know, we're, we're always thinking, we're always, whenever we ask someone to do something, we think about, we help them think about, is there someone who could do this with you? Or, you know, would you like some help from somebody? It might be that person or someone else. That does it for our extended version of Let's Get Psyched for the episode with talking about prolonged grief disorder therapy with Dr. Catherine Shipp. Thanks for joining us.